Well, welcome everyone. We've got a few questions. We're putting, uh, we're putting John and Pam Dysinger in the hot seats today, but we're, we're glad uh, you're joining us uh, for kind of a meet the farmer. We have a number of questions we'll run through and hopefully even more than are on the list. But uh, let's first start off with a word of prayer. Father, we are once again um, grateful to be here um, on this day in Texas in January and to uh, have an opportunity to just continue to learn and to experience perhaps new ways of doing things in our gardens and farms at home. Uh, pray in a special way you'd be with John and Pam and all of us as we are talking about um, trying to understand and learn better ways of being able to be involved in such a powerful ministry as Market Guard. And um, we just look forward to the time we get to spend together and just ask your blessing upon it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, I kind of like to think of John and Pam Dysinger as the grandfather, no, 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 but the experience. It's coming, it's coming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is coming, that is coming. But, you know, in regards to um, the Adventist Agriculture Association, um, John and Pam were very influential in starting this organization. In fact, John was the chair of the board uh, for the first several years, and we we have a great uh, gratitude for the work you guys have done and laying a lot of the groundwork um, in more ways than one, not just in farming, but in so many other ways to, to reach out and touch many people's lives. Um, and I think only in the kingdom will we realize how many lives have been touched, not just from helping other people learn and experience the idea and the concept of turning some of these market gardening principles into reality, uh, but, you know, obviously the many people's lives you've touched with the vegetables that you grow and the, the ways you just touch people. And, and, you know, if you were here for the earlier presentation that John gave, he was, he, you know, got me emotional because he got a bit emotional about an experience about one of their uh, individuals who they've known and worked with for many years um, whose wife passed away, and, you know, they reach out to their family to say, please pray for us. Um, and these people aren't even of, the, of our similar faith. And um, those are, how do, you, how do you quantify that? How, how do you put a dollar amount on that? Um, there's just so many things that are kind of so intangible that uh, in, this, in this market gardening space that um, just hard to know, right? Because we like to talk numbers sometimes, and numbers are good. And we'll talk a little bit about that today, but there's just... Uh, <coughs> variety of things that are going on. So Bountiful Blessings Farm is where Pam and um, John actually first, I'm assuming that's kind of where you first got started. Is that right? I mean, tell us a little bit about that, John and Pam. How, when you grew up, were you, did you get either one come from uh, agrarian-based lifestyles? Where, I mean, where you had the, the soil that was just, you, you came out and there was dirt underneath your fingernails? I mean, was that kind of where your experience was? Well, I used to actually love to eat dirt as a child. <laughs> and I think that might have had something to do with my interest later on. But 
I mean, the short answer is no. I mean, I came from a very academic background, and my wife also came from a very non-agrarian background. Um, but we, had a, we did have a garden. We, yeah, growing up, we both had gardens off and on yeah. in our ch childhood. But no interest whatsoever in, in agriculture. I think that's fair to say. Well, I think my first interest came when we were actually overseas, and we were teaching in Kenya. And I, in, in Africa at that time, you just had a yard person to do your work. And I didn't want to portray that image. I wanted to do our own yard work, and I wanted to have a garden. And I remember trying to urge my head. Do you remember that, honey? <laughs> I wanted to have a garden. And it, I'm sure I was influenced by a friend of mine there who they had a lovely big garden. Mm -hmm. And so I can remember, I, I remember him getting the tractor and digging it out. The school had a tractor. But um, I'm sad to say that without, it, it wasn't a cooperative <laughs> effort and the garden really failed. That was our first garden. Uh, yeah, we just had too many other things going. Yeah. It wasn't a high enough priority. Right. So, you know, you guys have written, anybody here actually read their book, uh, The Ebenezer? What's the title of it? Ebenezer? Our Ebenezer. Who, who's read the book? Okay, so if you, if you haven't read the book, I would encourage you to read the book, okay? Now, just a side note, my son, he finds it very stressful to read the book. <laughs> he goes it makes me huh <laughs> it's probably better to read the book before you get into agriculture because once you get into agriculture you start relating to too many things that they bring up in the book maybe i don't know but and you have to you have to read it all the way to the end yeah yeah you got to read it all the way because yeah there's a lot of years of trial and error yeah and and i'll have to say so what does alan really say about it Oh, he says it makes him stressful, makes him feel stressed to read the book because of, because of, well, you know, it's a roller coaster. I know. I mean, so if you're. I, when I was writing it, I can remember thinking, who is going to want to read this? This is the most, <laughs> <laughs> just, so it, he, he was right. But, yeah. Oh, it's a good book. Praise the, praise the Lord. It, yeah, no, it's, it's. it's it's important, it's an important, anyway, it, it talks a lot about their, the God early years good. of their journey. Uh, and so here's the thing we could spend easy an hour just on talking about why they felt convicted to get into the whole agriculture so we, we can't take that much time but do you have a just a little snippet of something that do you have do you, do you recall a moment perhaps or was it more just a, a, a tendency moving this direction was there something kind of that just I think we ought to think about this. Was there something like that that you can kind of put your finger on that you could share with us today? So John and I are both teachers, and I think the first call to our hearts was definitely because of our experience in Africa working with missionaries' children, we knew that we wanted a different path. We knew God was calling us to something different. And so that was the first step was we're going to do something where we can be a family and we can be more together. And um, when we left Africa and we came back to the States, John was still teaching for two years. But at that point, we said, we are not reaching our goals. 
We are not able to be together as a family. And the Lord started laying on John's heart, agriculture, agriculture, agriculture. If you read the spirit of prophecy, you can't get away from that theme. And so he was reading more and more. And I did not want to farm. I did not want to go that route. I was really, but he did the right thing. And he just gave me time. And in time, the Lord confirmed Mm. that that's what we were to do. And so we've been united in that vision ever since we put our hand to the plow, so to speak. What, what would you say when he said he gave you time? What, what kind of time or period? I mean, we're talking weeks, months, a few years. What, how, how did that trans? I mean, I, I only drill down on this because this for couples, small families, you know, this, is a, this could be a real sticky situation. I remember at this conference, at this location, at this conference several years ago when we had it here, I remember a gentleman coming up to me towards the end, and he says, I really feel convicted to do this, but my wife doesn't want anything to do with it. And as he's telling me, there's a tear coming down his eye. I mean, you could tell, you could see it's a struggle, and and the idea is like he's he's looking for what what do how do I proceed? Because I mean, obviously, his marriage is very important to him. What I'm just curious. So, do do you recall the time how that worked? So, I mean, for for us, it was not very long, yeah. because I was I was completely sold out in following the Lord in whatever he wanted us to do. And so, I mean, I don't remember exactly, but John just told me, honey, you need to take some time with the Lord. And the Lord confirmed. But in that situation, to me, that's something very different. Yeah. And you're dealing with a heart issue. Yeah. And your marriage has to, I mean, you, you have to do what's right for your marriage and pray that that spouse will come around. So in that situation, it might be years. It might be years, but you can't. For such a weighty thing, it would, it would have destroyed our marriage, truly. Yeah. It would have destroyed our marriage if we hadn't been united. Yeah. And I'll just say, although, you know, when I came to her, so I took time out, you know, for probably, I would say, well, even close to a year, it had been a growing conviction, you know, after I quit teaching, because it was kind of like, okay, now what do we do? You know, mm. I'm out of a job. I just resigned. Um, yeah, yeah. So it was, you know, it was a real time of soul searching. But, um, you know, so it wasn't like this came out of the blue. You know, I was reading Elliot Coleman and the Spirit of Prophecy. <laughs> and <laughs> those two together, and the Bible. So I guess those three together were just putting more and more conviction on my heart. So, but it was scary, you know. I'd I'd mention it to people. It's like, yeah, well, that's that's a neat idea, but you can't make a living doing yeah. that, you know. Yeah. Boy, and yeah, too idyllic. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I finally took some time out with the Lord and said, just show me. And I asked for some signs, and he fulfilled the signs. But one of those signs was that my wife would be in agreement. And so when I came back and shared, you know, I really feel the Lord's calling us to this. Yeah. It's like, uh, I'm not so sure. That's when, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
anyway, but it is, it's, it's, a, it's an important juncture, right, right in that whole experience with the spouse, if, if you're married, and those types of things. It's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's an important aspect. Now, tell us a little bit about where's the farm located. How did you find out, like, about this particular property that the farm is located on, and why did you decide to locate where you're actually located? Very good. Yeah, it just keeps kind of blinking on us. It's shaking. <laughs> Why is it? I just wonder, is this, is it a bad? Yes. Middle Tennessee. An hour southwest of Nashville. This feels like there's something here, huh? Um, yeah, and we can spend a little time. I don't know if we want yeah. to do that now. Looking at this. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how, how did you how how was this location where you decided to land? What's what's that about? Yeah. Well, these are all long answers. But <laughs> my parents bought the farm in their retirement, 193 acres. Um, you know. Yeah. It was like, what are you doing, buying a farm for your retirement? But, you know, it was one of those things the Lord knew what was coming, and so he prepared the way. So the farm was there waiting for us. They're saying, we'll give you 10 acres if you'll come live on the farm. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was uh, we say we're sharecroppers, you know, yeah. on my parents' farm, but um, they, that was their thing. So you went there. Um, how did you decide, like, how to start? Where to begin? I mean, what, what was going through your mind at that point in time? <laughs> I mean, uh, we had a lot of ideas, and I'll say this. Farmer, I'll just caution you this. Farmers love what they do, or they wouldn't do it. And so it looks always good on paper, or even when you're talking to a farmer, because yeah. they're passionate about what they do, they love it, they, so. They always give you the best, you know, the, the best numbers they've ever had, you know, even though that may have been an anomaly, but it's like, <laughs> you know, yeah, well, we made this much, you know, growing this, it's, ooh, wow. But I'll, I'll tell you just a quick, a quick story. So when we first moved there, and we were teaching, actually, mm -hmm. but then um, the first spring, I wanted to take my little children to pick strawberries, and we could not find a strawberry grower anywhere. And we drove two hours to a farm owned by an older gentleman to pick strawberries. And we did that for two seasons, I think. And the second season we were starting to have some thoughts that we should maybe think about agriculture. And I talked to that gentleman mm. about his operation. And he was so encouraging about our family starting to grow strawberries. And so they actually hand wrote us several pages. And we as a family, see, I had only met him because I was going with the children to pick strawberries while John was working. But after they sent us this letter... John and I went and sat down and spent an evening, well, and the kids, we all went and spent an evening with this precious couple. It was our far, my first real introduction to kind of 
the culture of what farmers are. I had no idea that's what it was, but yeah. the kindest, most generous, willing to share any knowledge they had. And that was where we started with strawberries. And we crunched the numbers, half an acre, producing this much. We should be good for a year. And it all looked good on paper. So the land that we're looking at right now, was what you were already living kind of in that area or on that property? Yes. Yeah. You can see the driveway down at the very... Over here? Right here. Yeah. Yeah. So there... Uh-huh. We built a little log cabin there when we were still thinking we were going to be teaching for many years. And uh, then the Lord, you know, switched our direction. Eventually, we had to sell that log cabin, and we actually now live in that big red barn on the second. This one right here. Yes. Yeah. On the second story, we, uh, yeah. You, anyway, we could tell. Well, but here's, here's a thought. What, I, what I'd love to just visualize here is, could you point out where you actually planted that first set of strawberries on that, on, up there? Is that possible? Yeah, our first field was actually right here where all these are. That was where our first strawberry, in our second year. Um, and then we kind of made another field here. So this has all been leveled and graded, and, you know, for these hoop houses. Those yeah. are movable hoop houses. Yeah, and so for, for folks who are just seeing this for the first time, I've had a chance to go to their farm a couple times. From here to here, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a drop. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's I mean, definitely a slope. And that's why the fields are kind of laid out, you know, maybe a little funny is just because of the lay of the land. So you grew those strawberries, and that's how you got, you got started in the strawberry business, right? Kind and, of. Yeah. <laughs> so it's fair to say things didn't go quite like you expected. Yeah, the, the, the numbers on paper didn't match. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that matched up was it was a very big trial. A very big trial. Now, tell me, how old were you guys when, when this all happened? Tell me about your family dynamics there. How old were you? How many kids you have? All that kind of stuff. Well, it was in 98, so I guess I was uh, 30. <laughs> well, what would I have been? I don't know. I get in these situations, and my brain doesn't work very well. Mid-30s? So, yeah. our, our, our children were two, four, and right around six. The first three are about two years apart. So we were in our early 30s. And, uh, well, the youngest one, I would have been 32. So you would have been 35. Yeah. So that, so you've been growing for, you said, what, 22 years? Is that right? Yeah. This is your 22nd? Yeah. 22 and a half. Now, I'm curious to know, how did you, could you just kind of, give us a sense of over this 22-year period, without going into tremendous detail, of course, but how has that farm, that's, that's a current picture, a, re a relatively recent picture? It's actually a few years old. We've, oh, okay. we've rearranged the middle fields there, so there's 12 of them rather than 10. Okay, but, but it's fair to say that primarily your growing space is from like here over to yeah, over yeah. there somewhere? Yeah. Okay. And how did you decide to build out? I mean, you, you did the strawberries. What was the next 
step you took after moving beyond strawberries? How did you, how did, I mean, is there a way you could just help us? If somebody's here thinking about this, I mean, that's pretty, that's, that picture is a bit intimidating to somebody who's thinking about this. At least, it's kind of intimidating to me, and we have a small farm, but our farm's much smaller than this. But I'm just trying to think, sequentially, how did, can you walk us yeah, through something like that? I can. So we started, so this for, it's just easier if I could. So these first, there was no tunnels here, and we didn't have all that flat. It was just one field. This was our first structure. This house is our, now our propagation house. So as John said, we grew strawberries, just strawberries, for I think six years. And, wow. and So that would be the, our first crop was 99 to 2003. Okay, so that was the, when we, and then in 2003, we had a devastating hit on the farm that almost took us out. And it was at that time that we started a winter, growing in the winter. And we, this house was new, and we started growing um, some lettuces and things in there. So that, that was added in 2003. And then we started to grow. Well, the next structure was that first tunnel on the far side. These middle sections, we on the were far also side. You growing. You mean like over here? Yeah, that uh -huh. one. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So we had started to grow a little bit in these fields. But I w let me just tell you this. When we first started growing, we were doing more than we are now. Well, not when we first, but in the middle years of our farming, yeah. um, when John's brother partnered with us for a few years, he and his wife, in those years, we weren't just growing here, but we were growing across the road. We had about six acres under cultivation. Now we have less than an, an acre and a half, right at an acre and a half that That's we're okay. growing on. So we have brought it much tighter. Can you tell us a little bit about, well, I so want to come back I'll to just, that. I want to come back to that. Go okay. Ahead. So, so then we just started adding. I think we added some of these moving tunnels, but they just added slowly over the years. And we've just added our last tunnel down there. You see the plots beyond those hoop houses? Yes. There's six of them. Those plots aren't being used now. We have a house down there where my mother lives. Oh, really? So okay. um, these circular right there, the circular rows, those yeah. are our blueberries. Um, okay. But we have one, we have a fourth tunnel. So the only place we are still going to put a structure is right there. Um, but it's just grown. I mean, we've been there 20, 22 years, and it ta it's just a process. Yeah, it's a process, isn't it, it? So I'm curious to know, you, how many years did you grow without even having a green, uh, any kind of uh, greenhouse, hoop house, anything like that? Did you, Just the first. The whole, the, every time you were growing strawberries, you never had that under a tunnel or anything, or no? No, but we actually got this first structure pretty early on. I think it was in 2000. That, your um, seed propagation? Yeah. Uh -huh. and, you know, I, I don't ask me how we did it, because <laughs> I don't know where we came up with the money for that. But, um, yeah, we did it because we, we thought we needed it at that time for propagating the strawberries. Everybody was doing it undercover. So we were just following what everybody else was doing. Now, since then, they've realized it actually is better outdoors. Um, but anyway, that's why we got it. And then in 2003, as she was saying, we started growing in there in the winter. And 
Yeah, so we did everything kind of backwards. We started with strawberries, and then we do it, started doing the winter, and then eventually in 2010, I think it, we had our first summer commercial operation. Could you walk us through a little bit about, you went from up to a point where you had six or seven acres, now you're back down to about an acre and a half, give or take. What was the mindset about scaling up and now scaling, I mean, going back to an acre and a half from six or seven acres, that's a pretty big, what brought you into that way of thinking? Well, so when we were doing six or seven acres, um, that was when my brother and his family were working with us, and yeah. we were just, at that point, we were still focused on strawberries and a winter CSA. It was kind of like we would start marketing in October, go through strawberry season in May, and then the summer we weren't doing marketing, we were just, we were growing crops for the winter, storage crops and mm. stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but as we started getting more structures, we, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's like, these are expensive. We need to be using them year-round, not just in the winter. So it's like, okay, how do we start utilizing these more efficiently and so then it was kind of a logical step to start doing summer growing. And then it was kind of like, well, but we don't want to grow year-round because that's, it's tiring. I mean, to me, it's not the growing so much as the marketing it gets stressful after a while. And the planning, you know, you just need a break. So then we had this brilliant idea of dividing the seasons so that, we would do the spring and summer, and Edwin and Jennifer and their family would do fall and winter. And that worked well, and I still think it's a great model for a farm, for a multifamily farm, because there's very little overlap, actually. There's some, but um, anyway, eventually, because of Edwin and Jennifer's children kind of choosing other pathways, they didn't see it they didn't choose a future on the farm then edwin and jennifer were like you know we're not we don't want to grow old doing this by ourselves so mm -hmm. they kind of got more involved in their children's lives and activities and we bought them out their half of the partnership and joshua our son joshua and his wife lead out in the winter now so we do the spring summer growing they do the fall winter and it's a nice balance i don't know if that fully answered your it was, that question was, that was very good but I, I would be interested in knowing back down to scaling down oh yeah because you still so, now you have two families involved in it but now you're growing on a third of what you were at, at one time i'm just would curious to know what yeah i i think there. it was a combination of things you know i'm always reading new books you know jm came out with his market gardener book and it's like man you know, you, you realize it's not always about doing more, that it's about doing it better. Mm -hmm. and, and we started realizing that, you know, if we did less, we could probably make as much money. And um, that's proven true. And, and also, as part of this, you know, Mrs. White has a quote talking to farmers who keep adding land and getting bigger yeah. and she says don't you know that 20 acres with the blessing of God can produce as much as a hundred 
And so that really has, mm. has motivated us. It's like, why, why keep adding? If we can do less and do it better, do it more efficiently, and with the blessing of God, make as much money. And, you know, then we can have, ideally, you know, more time for ministry and yeah. stuff. So I... Does yeah, that, yeah, yes. absolutely. And Excellent. I would just add to that on a marketing scale. At one point, we were doing three markets a week, and we dropped one, and we made more. The second one dropped us, and we were left with one market, and we made more. 2019, we thought we really need to pick up a second market. We picked up a second market, but in 2020, we only had one market. We, back, we went back down. And we made as much this year on our market as we did in 2019 when we had two. So for us, less has been more. I think we've just been able to do a better job at it. And there's something about farmer's markets. If you don't have a bounty, if you don't come with an abundance, people don't come by your booth. And so it's better to have a really bountiful display. And you'll sell more than when you just have little less yeah. I mean it's an important lesson because I mean I think a lot of us think in order to in order to maybe make a little more to make this work we got to expand and maybe at some point that's true but perhaps it's just, just to do better with what you have it's also what you're doing yeah you know this year we added microgreens that has been a great addition tell me about how many people actually work on the farm how many, I mean, I know you say you divide it into a couple of different systems. And for, you know, just a little promo for a, a class tomorrow, we're going to be interviewing Joshua, their son, and we're going to specifically talk about winter growing. That's all that class is about, is about growing in the winter. We're not going to really touch, touch on that much here today. We're going to, you guys do more spring, summer. But how many, how many people work on the farm? John and I were just saying, you know, that's really a hard question for us to answer because, you know, our family that works on the farm is John and I, Joshua and Kelly, and Caleb. So five of us. But none of us, except maybe John, are working full-time. I mean, I certainly don't work full-time on the farm. I'm doing good if I get out there for an hour. I mean, I do the books and whatever. But, and then we have interns, and they put in hours. But their hours, obviously, are not valuable like our hours when we really know what we're doing. And... And then those interns take a lot of emotional and physical energy from us to care for them, to nurture them, to guide them, to, to help them get the experience from the farm that they're looking to get. And yeah. so, I mean, oh, this is what we did say, though. The yes. five of us could run the farm at the same level if it was just us. That's, I, I think that's safe to say because we have experience, we have, you know... Um, but because the Lord has called us to lots of other things, like, you know, th that takes our time, takes us away from the farm. Are, so. are any of the other individuals, like yourself or, or Joshua or Kelly, are they actually earning income at another job off the farm? They're just involved in something else that's kind of not farm-specifically related? Well, Joshua and Kelly have a number of side things. Joshua does chickens, okay. um, well, eggs, yeah, and, and so that's kind of separate from the farm. Right. 
Um, Kelly has goats. Kelly has also done a lot with Etsy, and she's getting into painting and crafts and that kind of thing. So those are all um, some side things, but pretty okay. much it's supporting two families full-time. Um, I was going somewhere. Tell us about the internship program. How does that work? Do you like, do you, do you pay your interns? Do they volunteer for a certain amount of time? Do they get a stipend? Do you provide them housing? Just how, how does that generally, I mean, there may be exceptions, but how does that generally work? Well, you're, you're uh, asking a lot of big questions here. <laughs> but, um, so just briefly, the internship, we have literally tried all, all different ways. At one time, we were charging quite a bit for the internship and making it much more academic and... Um, and then we've gone to the other extreme where um, we were paying them a stipend, a monthly stipend. But just um, a couple of years ago, when we took a sabbatical, I tried to do a little more research into it and realized that basically, technically, from, from the government's point of view, if you're paying somebody anything, they're an employee, unless they're contract labor, you know. But and and we didn't want to get into that with all the complications of that. So we're doing what what is technically called a legal unpaid internship, and basically they come. I mean, they pay what is it, two hundred and fifty or two hundred and fifty dollars to kind of hold their place, and that also covers textbooks and some basic tools. And then there's no additional charge to the interns. But we are not paying them either. They get free housing. They get, we eat our noonday meals together, our lunches together. Um, we give them $100 a month food stipend to cover you know, what they need for their breakfast and if they eat supper. And they can also eat from the farm. So that's kind of it. And then as far as we try to make it educational, we do, we do farm visits, tours, and that kind of stuff. We, we try to throw in some fun stuff so it's not all work, going canoeing and camping and so on. Um, and then classwork every day. We're doing both spiritual things. We go through, we study the book Education and Councils on Agriculture. And then we go through the New Organic Grower and um, the Lean Farm, a number of books that we go through just trying to give a good basic. So it's a combination of, of classwork but mainly hands-on, and they do everything from seeding to selling. Do they stay, where do you, do you have accommodations for them that are separate than your house, or where do they stay? Yes, we have three tiny cabins, um, very Spartan cabins. Um, so, you know, we're, we're not trying to give luxury accommodations, we're trying to toughen them up a little bit. <laughs> It's a six-month program from, from beginning of March to end of August. 
and then usually we'll keep a couple on through the end of October. By the end of the October, most of the planting is done for the winter, and yeah. Okay. Good. I appreciate you sharing that, and I and I appreciate you thinking. I mean, sharing with us that's gone, kind of, you know, you've gone through the whole circle, so to speak, about it, and that's. Um, well, it's just interesting. Yeah, how it So works. we used to, I mean, we used to really feel like these guys really should be making us money. So it shouldn't be a hardship to pay them a little stipend. But the reality is that I think maybe for some people it would work that way, but for us it hasn't worked that way. And, you know, interns make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes are very costly to us. And we've had some very recent experiences like yeah. that. Yeah. So Anything it, you want to share? It, no. Okay. All right. I mean, now's but, your opportunity. You no, know? I mean, it's all good, but okay. we give a lot to it. Well, we're going to take a bit of a transition here. We're going to talk about water and what, how you deal with water on the farm. Not, I mean, as far as irrigation and things of this nature, how, how, how are you guys currently set up with, with irrigating water and things of that nature? Well, we're kind of almost sheepish to talk about it because it's so good that every we don't want people feeling jealous <laughs> but um, we have I think the ideal water setup we have a large spring you know I don't even know how much you know 60 80 gallons a minute that feeds into a pond it's like a two acre pond that's up the valley from our house and fields Right, if you were visualizing it, it would be kind of yeah, back up, up here up somewhere. Yeah. Oh, and actually, that's one of the intern cabins right there. I didn't know. Oh, it right was here? In, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so we have a four-inch line coming down from the pond, gravity flow. So we don't have to pump our water at all, and it's enough pressure to do all our irrigation. Uh, so it's it's ideal and we have plenty of water for washing produce you know spring water for that um, as far as irrigation goes we we have the farm set up with you know a, a faucet by each of the pads so it's very simple to to hook up irrigation and we do a combination of overhead and drip overhead I think is much easier <clears throat> less work involved so we do that as much as we can but some things do better with drip what what are the things that you typically find do better with drip as opposed to overhead <clears throat> well pretty much your fruiting crops you know your tomatoes your peppers cucumbers um, and the other thing we're we're kind of going back to a little more we're realizing that Overhead irrigation in the winter is is a challenge. There's disease issues, specifically with downy mildew, mm. but then also the weeding. Even though the weeding is much less in the winter, because the soil doesn't really dry out very much, especially if you're still irrigating some, it's almost impossible to get the weeds out through cultivation. They just reroot you know, after cultivation because the soil's moist. So mm. we're feeling if we go back to drip, we can maybe do a better job of winter weeds. Let's talk a little bit about your propagation, your seed house. T 
talk about, if you would, a little bit about what, what's your ratio in regards to, do you mostly seed and have transplant little plants that you put out in the field, or do you, are there some crops you actually direct seed right into the field? What's that, what's that look like? And if you do direct seed, what are those crops that you direct seed and, and you don't put out as little seedlings? My husband's really the seeder, but <laughs> we do a lot of transplants. Um, that is, you know, it, it gives us a head start on the weeds because you can, have, you can have the weeds taken care of and then you put in the plant and it's much easier. We even do corn that way. In the spring, we get a jump start on corn because we can get it, you know, this big. And then it's a, you know, if you plant corn, direct seed it, um, it doesn't often come, all come up right, or the birds get it, or it's a spotty germination. But when we do it, four seeds in a soil block, and then we can put it out, we've got complete, you know, good rows. We do direct seed some things, um, carrots, radishes, turnips, the root, the root crops. Um, and we also do paper pot, and we're doing a lot of paper pot. If you're not familiar with paper pot, it's... Um, it. It's a chain that has soil. You can, you can put it in a tray, and then you fill it with soil, and you seed it, and then when you plant it, you use the paper pot planter. So your tray actually sits on the planter, and you pull it through, um, pull it towards you, don't you? And, and it just um, leaves, the, leaves the paper pot right just there and covers it. Go watch a video. <laughs> That's a better talk. So... But we're doing a lot of paper potting, all of our lettuces and all of our beets and all of our Swiss chard. Um. Yeah, so just to finish, the, so direct seeded would be carrots, beans, mm -hmm. um, radishes. We really don't do much direct seeding of turnips. We'll use the paper pot for that. Um, Baby salad greens like arugula, um, many of your Asian mizuna mustard kinds of things. Um, so any baby salad greens other than Salanova lettuce, which I don't know how much you know about that, but that's it's kind of a full head baby mix. I, I don't mm -hmm. know how to mm -hmm. say it better than that, but... Um, Trying to think if there's any other direct seeded crops. So pretty much, I mean, even beets, you know, we, we transplant. Um, and the reason is primarily just better stands? Just better, better results, yeah. plus much more efficient use of space. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your seed, your, when you're seeding. Um, do you have a couple tips for people that to help them think about when they're wanting to have better success with seeding and germination and any two things that come in like you've learned over the years that you feel like are boy this is a big one this is important I wish I would well, have known my this. first tip would be to just listen to the transplant class I just did on <laughs> audio verse or something look at the slides from that we use soil blocks. We really like soil blocks, the results of them. Um, get a good potting mix. You know, don't fiddle around with, with 
junky stuff. Don't buy your potting mix from a box store. You know, buy it from a nursery supply house or something. Mm -hmm. um, those, those are, are two. Yeah, tips. yeah, but very good. <laughs> another another topic that we could spend a lot of time on, and we're, we we have more to cover. But what about soil fertility? I know you mentioned earlier in the class you taught here, you talked about you had a, a high phosphorus level where yeah. you're that there in Tennessee. Is this, is this where, do they have a quarry right next to you where they mine the Tennessee brown rock phosphate? They, they did, yes. <laughs> did they really? Honestly, yeah, they, they had a, a rail line down our valley and they mined all of that. So. Any organic growers are probably familiar with Tennessee soft rock phosphate. You know, that's probably from our farm. <laughs> and we'd be happy to give you some more if you <laughs> have a way to extract it. So we just have, we have sky-high phosphorus levels, and we realize there's really nothing we can do about that. That's just something we have to deal with. So the upside is we never have to add it, you know. But as far as soil fertility, I, I kind of have a two or three pronged approach. You know, I, I believe in soil testing and trying to balance your soil the best you can chemically um, through, through amendments, natural amendments. But I'm not convinced that's the full picture. Um, I think there's a, a physical structure component. You know, our soils tend to be on the clay side. They're not super high clay, except one little part of the farm. Um, but we've been doing a lot recently with peat moss. In my mind, peat moss is kind of the miracle soil improver because it, it's, fertility-wise, it's fairly neutral. It's not gonna throw your numbers off too much but it does an amazing job of, of increasing the tilth of the soil, the structure of the soil, which makes everything easier. That's the thing, you invest in the soil and seeding is easier because your, your planter is not bouncing around and hitting hard spots. Um, cultivating is easier. You know, the soil is just softer to work with. Harvesting is easier because it's, it's easier to pull stuff out. Um, so we, we're putting a lot of peat moss on our beds just to build the structure of the soil, make it looser, and, and of course, it's, it's a long-term source of organic matter, slowly breaking down. Um, and then the biology of the soil, I'm really intrigued and in trying to learn all I can about that and just trying to definitely kind of moving in the direction more of no-till and that's kind of a whole nother subject but mm -hmm. um, yeah so kind of a looking at at the soil from all those different angles john or pam tell us a little bit about um i'm, th I'm wanting to talk a little bit about infrastructure regarding season extension Okay, and so just, just the concept, maybe for some new people here, give us a definition of what season extension means and what are the types of tools that typically somebody would use to, why would they, wanna, why would they want season extension? Why, why is that important? 
Um, well, the, there's a lot of good reasons for season extension. You know, one is just holding your customers. If you've got all these customers for the summer, and then at the end of the summer you say, see you next year, you know, that's always, that's hard for them because what are we going to do without our fresh veggies? Uh, so it's good for customer retention, but also, again, it's just, it's making the most efficient use of your infrastructure. Um, and when we started out, especially with winter growing, you know, back in 2003, people were like, what in the world are you going to grow in the winter? You know, it was such yeah. a new concept that we had a wide open market. We could sell everything we grew in the winter. And I would say it's still largely that way, although there's certainly many more people getting into it now. Um, so it, it's, it's a less crowded market. You know, in our area, trying to sell tomatoes in July, it's like there's tomatoes everywhere. It's, it's you know, People aren't looking for tomatoes in July, mm -hmm. but our goal this year, we actually just added a fourth large hoop house down there, and this is our first venture into what I would call high-tech climate-controlled growing with fans and heater and automated roll-up sides and stuff. So it's going to be interesting to see whether it's worth all the additional money but our goal with that is to have tomatoes at our first market, the 1st of May. And um, if we can do that, we can make a lot of money in May and June on tomatoes. Right. And then when everybody else has them, then, you know, we back off from it some. What was your first, I'm just curious, thinking back, what was your first... Um, experience with season ex something that was a season extension did you actually ever do low hoops or any wire hoops or do you still do any of those or because i'm thinking from a for a starter farm when budget is really critical i mean that's how that's how we got started it was just a simple we went to lowe's and we bought these things we bent them and we stuck them in the ground and put a blanket on them or you know whatever i'm just curious is that our, what you our first season extension was definitely low tech and we did not have the structures. Um, we might have had one, one of the houses, one of the, we call them H houses. So the small ones are M houses because they're movable and the far ones are H houses. So we had one of those H houses, I think, when we first started growing in the winter. But we definitely used those low hoops. It is a pain. There, there, I mean, now you can get a caterpillar tunnel from Farmer's Friend. And, you know, that's a way better option than what we started with, those low tunnels. And, you know, it, yeah. So there, there are better options now. But for those on a budget starting out, it's definitely a good way to go. You know, it's, if that's what you can afford, that's what you do. It works. I was telling the others earlier, we've had great success with, you can, you know, cover them with row cover, but then if you want to go the next step, cover them with plastic. And with those two layers, row cover and plastic, you can take... Um, most any cool weather crop through the any weather that that winter throws at you 
It's just the effort of setting it all up and then pulling off row covers and getting under there and harvesting and then putting it all back down and tightening it down. It's, it's kind of backbreaking. But if you're young and you've got lots of energy, go for it. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to jump, jump down a little bit. I'm just kind of keeping track of time here. Um, have you, I know you mentioned earlier you had this period where you were at six or seven acres. You've scaled back. Have you found that you've also scaled back at all on the variety of produce that you grow from, from a, a point somewhere before? And if you did, tell us, think, walk us through why you decided to do that. We're not sure. Well, John should say it, but we still grow a large variety. How, I mean, what, what's we grow maybe yeah. 80 varieties of, now, so that would be kale. There are, you know, we grow two kinds of kale. We grow curly kale and we grow lacinato kale. Right. Um, so, but I just looked on our, our CSA they have about 80 different things that they, um, were we growing more then? I don't That's a lot. I, I think the difference, well, yeah, we, we could talk about how our CSA has changed, but because that's changed what we grow. You know, okay. we've, we've realized that most people, you know, we always tried to grow more variety thinking that people are going to be tired of kale in their box every week, you know, so we're, we're growing five or six different kinds of kale, you know, red kale and white kale and, and all, all these different things. Well, come to find out most people just want curly kale, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and same with, with carrots, you know, you try the white and the red and the purple carrots, well, most people just want an orange carrot. Tomatoes, same way. Tomatoes are supposed to be red for most people, you know. So it's like, why are we killing ourselves growing all these fancy varieties when they just want what they're used to? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we've definitely cut back. You know, we used to grow a lot more exotic things like chicories, the endives and radicchios and, and um, escaroles. But, you know, people don't really like them that much. Kohlrabis, you know, yeah, they'll eat them, but they'd rather have something else, you know. So why grow it, you know? I'll just, I'll just add a thought, though. In the way that we used to do our CSA before, we would be introducing people to food, and many times people would say, oh, I have a new favorite. Like I can remember kohlrabi being one. Oh, I'd never had it before. I love it. So that's the good thing about the old way that yeah. the CSA was done, and the new way, they just get what they want, and most people just are very um, non-creative, stuck <laughs> in their rut, and they don't really want the new, <laughs> the new thing unless it's just right. forced upon them, but... So, yeah, we, I guess in that, in that way we do grow less variety. So if you started all over again, the very beginning, uh, what, what would be two or three things that you would say we would do, perhaps we would consider doing this different? I mean, is there something that you would say to, like, a, a newbie out here or even someone who's been around for a while and say, hey, this is something we need to be thinking about when you're heading down the path of considering market farming? 
So I'll tell you one thing that we would do differently, and that is that we would standardize everything. We would, every plot would be the same size. Every, because that way you can, you can use the same row covers on any plot, the same drip tapes, the same lengths, the same, you know, if it's standardized, it would be so much easier. But you can look at our farm. It was a process and nothing, I mean, we have some standardizations. All the M pads are the same. And we have, well, let me say this. We have changed. Yeah the structures and the, and the plot sizes to become more standard. Um, but if we were starting from the beginning, we would definitely standardize it from the beginning. So that's one thing. And then diversification, I think, is the second thing. You know, starting out just with strawberries was kind of a, almost a fatal mistake, you know. The, the more diverse it is, the less you're dependent on any particular crop. I mean, you guys did jump kind of in the deep end, right? I mean, you left your work and you went into farming yeah. full time. Would there, be a, would there be a place for somebody saying, maybe start this out, keep your day job and do this on the side and work into oh, this? Oh, for I mean, sure. Yeah. Don't, don't do what we do. Because <laughs> we always do things the hard way. What would you say would be a couple things that you're still feeling like are challenges on the farm that you're wanting to um, you want to you're still trying to work with or get get over this hurdle is there anything in particular that strikes you like that well we wrote down a couple things number one one weakness that we have is in the area of marketing where none of us we didn't breed um, high-pressure salespeople <laughs> um, and none of us really like that kind of hustling produce. So for the most part, marketing takes care of itself. You know, our farm has a good reputation. Our customers um, stick around pretty well. Uh, so marketing isn't a huge thing, but where we get into trouble is if we've got like a bumper crop, you know, like a bunch of cherry tomatoes. Like this spring, you know, somebody... We thought we had a market for these, all these cherry tomatoes, so we grew a bunch. And then that fizzled out because of COVID. So we're, you know, we're picking you know, hundreds of pints of cherry tomatoes. And if we'd had somebody with a little more marketing savvy or umph, you know, we could have really sold those probably rather than composted them. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one thing, and so the the other option, and this is what we're choosing to do from here, you know, this next year, is that we are actually hiring one of our interns to come back to the farm to deal with value-added stuff, so that when we have that situation, well, number one, you have somebody that you're not depending on every day to be on the farm. So that person can actually do more marketing or could process those in a way that they give them some shelf life. Do you so, have a commercial kitchen? We have, in Tennessee, you can do most things under what under the cottage kitchen ruling. And cottage kitchen, you can do bread, you can do jams, you can't do any processing like canning tomatoes or 
any vegetables. But you can dehydrate. You can, like with the cherry tomatoes, if we had dried them, we could have been putting them in our gluten-free bread. That would have been a great, you know, cherry tomatoes aren't really that good, just dehydrated by themselves. But I think if we had dehydrated them and then we were putting them inside our gluten-free bread with our farm herbs, so then you've got farm herbs, farm dried tomatoes in, in a product that's not coming from the farm. So that's kind of our tack. And that's also why we like the CSA. You don't have to market so much. And we live a long ways out. It's not easy for us to, yeah. to just pop into a restaurant or a store and say, hey, we've got some cherry tomatoes for you. John? Did you have yeah, and then um, consistency of availability. I think this is kind of the holy grail maybe of mm -hmm. market farming, but to be able to have lettuce year-round, you know, and, and people come to the market knowing you're going to have lettuce or whatever it is, you know, the big things, carrots, you know, just, you know, it, it tends to, to kind of the, the crops ebb and flow and to try to even that out. I think is something that every market farmer is trying to figure out. It's good. And a challenge. I mean, that is a, that is a hard one to figure out. Um, let's open it up for a couple questions, maybe three or four. Who has one? Hang, hold tight. Let me, let me just come to you if I could. Sorry. You said you've been farming for 22 years, and there's always a reason to call it quits. There's always a reason to be discouraged. What has kept you going? I, I don't think we would say there's always a... I, I think in the early years, yes, there was a lot of discouragement. But I would say in the last 10 years... We don't face that. The farm is on a sound footing. It's doing well financially. You know, this, when I look back to even the years when we were growing six or seven acres, I mean, we went, made way more money this year than we made back then, if that makes sense. What keeps us going is, man, our customers, the relationship we have with them. We're more passionate about the lifestyle of the agrarian lifestyle, the opportunities for ministry, than we've ever been, because now we're seeing more of the fruit of it. Does that, make, does that answer your question, Michael? Yeah. And I think the other thing is just knowing that we're where God wants us right now. You know, that keeps us going. And, and I'll just throw this out. You know, when there have been really discouraging times, the Lord kind of, you know, when I'm ready to throw in the towel, the Lord kind of says, okay, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> And it's like, I can't think of anything I'd rather do than what we're doing. So that kind of gets you through the hard times. It's like, I can't think of anything else I'd rather do. Except, of course, if I know God's called me to something else. Okay, another question. What are some ideas for uh, value-added products? And uh, how do you advertise your farm stuff to the CSA? Like when you're first starting off, how do you get CSA customers? So the value added, I'll say, come to the, come, what is it called, birds of a feather? <laughs> We're doing a birds of a feather in just a few minutes on value added products. So come and give your two cents. Um, but the other, the other part of it was how do you get CSA members? So this is what I would say. We would say 
CSA is not a place to start. You don't start a farm and start a CSA. It's, see, if you think of it in the academic realm, CSA is for your master's degree. It's just not, you don't want to start there. And so start by um, doing a farmer's market. There's very little, you know, if, if you have a crop failure, if you, you go to a farmer's market and start establishing a clientele, a customer base. And once you get that customer base in place, then invite them to join your CSA when you start it. So get a few years. I mean, it doesn't have to be long. I mean, there's so much knowledge out there now. There, there is so much. So just grow for a year and, or two years. And if it goes well, start a CSA. Oh, just a uh, qu question. Um, it seems to me, I, I'm, I'm in an engineering background and, and workforce. Um, and so this may seem counterintuitive, but I'm curious about, um, like, I kind of find it that I could um, cut off work um, and, and say, okay, Sabbath time, woohoo! But I, I look at this farming thing and I'm like, how could I let go? <laughs> you know, especially when, when the frost is hitting on Friday night or whatever, you know. Can, do you have any um, uh, experiences that kind of help you um, or something, uh, tips that you could share that, that, that help you to go ahead and release and truly rest on the Sabbath and not worry about the strawberries or the whatever farming challenge? Boy, that's a big one. Mm -hmm. you, I, you want to answer that? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think we both would have, and I'll give, we can both give two cents on that, but it's not easy. I will say it is, it's not easy. And to find the balance, um, we, especially John doesn't like to be on the farm on Sabbath because it really reminds him all the things that he needs to do. But I think that the bottom line is there are some things that have to be done on the Sabbath when you're doing, when you're dealing with living creatures, whether it's plants or animals. And so watering you, we, whatever can be done ahead, we do ahead. But if it can't be done ahead, like if you're going to have a hard frost on Saturday night, sometimes you have to get out there on Sabbath afternoon, late usually, and pull the covers on. But we, we, really, we really do very little on Sabbath. And I, I will have to say that our Sabbath rest is very sweet after a week's, week labor. Yeah, just to, to confirm, you know, in the busy part of the season, we just try not to be there on the Sabbath. Just go somewhere totally different because then it's not at all weighing on you. And, and again, you know, Mrs. White has a statement, um, and I just need to memorize it. I can never remember exactly how it goes, but um, no unnecessary work should be done on the Sabbath, something along those lines. So we try to really, you know, I do all my watering in the greenhouse Friday afternoon, and much of the year I don't need to water plants in the, green, the starter house on Sabbath. But if it's super hot, I'll go there in there Sabbath afternoon and just water. But, the, you know, that's not really work to me. Um, yeah. I, my son says, Sabbath was made for farmers. <laughs> Not really, but you know what I'm saying. Anyway, here we go. Two quick ones. Any thoughts on um, 
I know you host interns, but it sounds like they're all young or younger or single. Any thoughts on bringing a family, apprentice family? Uh, no pay, you know, just for us that want to move out but need that experience on the farm, not just the theory. So we're always willing for whatever God brings us. And so actually the Lord just brought us a family. They're on the farm now, two months ahead of the internship. Basically, we said, we are willing to consider you, but you would have to come with your housing. So we can't provide housing for a family. It's a family of five yeah. and three grown children. You know, they're, they're in their late teens, early 20s. So, so they came, and <laughs> they came, and I said, just come to the farm and stay for a week. You can look around, see if it really se seems like the right thing for you. If the Lord provides you with housing, well, they came with a, with a U-Haul and put it in storage in the town near us. And I was like, wow, I, okay, Lord, you must be. You know, they spent two days looking for a fifth wheel, and the Lord provided an amazing deal for them. And they, they, when we get home to the farm, it will be there sitting next to our barn. So I guess the answer is we're always open for what the Lord brings. This is the first time that we will have a family. Our, I mean, I'm going to say our hearts are largely in youth ministry because that's where we started our lives together. And so we love to work with young people, but we're also all about family. And so, and these people have young people, and they're not the only interns. We're, get, we're going to have a large group this year, actually. So we have the, that family of five, and then we have two more interns. Yeah. Last question. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, plus the young lady who's coming back to work for us. Okay, one more question here, and we'll wrap it up. Uh, so recently, maybe a little bit uh, more than a year, uh, me and my wife moved from Seattle to Michigan, and um, I was growing little stuff in fish tanks, you know, and stuff, and then I got to Michigan at Berrien Springs, ran out a plot of land, and that was really my first time being able to get in the ground, and it was awesome, but then, but then, we had events that we had to go to, and for myself, I grew up playing a lot of sports, but I don't play sports anymore, so the farm is good enough. And then I came back, and the weeds were ridiculous. And so my question, <laughs> but I mean, I loved it because that was my exercise, but I was like, the weeds were like brutal, you know, for me. How long were you gone? Uh, like a week or two weeks, you know, I was gone for. And my question is, um, I definitely do enjoy what I see. There are different other skills that I have. I'm a left-handed person, <laughs> so there's different things that I see myself doing, um, and I still enjoy the farm, but have y'all gotten to a place where, most likely, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts, where you, what are some tips you would say to keep in mind for the farm, where that if you do have away obligations, how to manage that, you know, in the starting stages, or do you just feel slammed. What are some thoughts you'd have to say on that? Yeah, you know, there's a lot to learn about weed management that, um, you know, just learning how to cultivate and when to cultivate and those kind of things that can really help a lot with that. Um, but 
if you're truly farming for a living, you can't just be a AWOL farmer, you know. You, if, and that's one of the beauties of the internship. You know, we often go away for, well, even this last summer, we went away for a week during the, the season. And it's kind of like, okay, guys, this is your, your test here. Can you, can you run the farm without us? And they usually love to rise to that challenge and, you know, go to market and everything, and they feel really like, wow, this is great. We don't need them anymore. <laughs> um, so it's good to have somebody there to cover for you. you. You can't just leave a farm and say, I'll come back in a week or two. But I, I would say on a home gardening scale, you should be able to leave your garden for a week and come back and not find it in too bad a shape. That is assuming there's proper rain. But we cultivate on our farm once a week. It's in the schedule every Thursday or whatever day it is. Um, cultivation happens. If you do that, you never have a weed problem. It's amazing. It really works beautifully. So then you time it, okay? If you know that you're going to be have a tendency to be gone, you know, then you, if you leave it cultivated and weed-free, when you come back in one week, it's not going to be overgrown. But the problem is if you leave it with weeds, then you come back in a week, and those weeds are going to have really taken hold. Well, very good. Thank you, John and Pam. Glad you all came. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.